Welcome to In Conversation With. Join me, Danny Jarvis, as I sit down with guest DJs, promoters, record labels, content makers, and anyone making moves on the underground house music scene. There's plenty of nostalgia, but there's also some key insights as to where the underground scene is today. So if you like what you hear, please hit the follow or subscribe button and leave us a review. Wherever you will listen to your podcasts, at the gym, in the car, or chilled at home. Relax and enjoy In Conversation With. Mr. Lazenby, hello. Hello, how are you? I'm very good. Welcome to a little In Conversation With session. It's nice to see your face and, of course, hear your voice. Nice to have you as a guest and find out more about yourself. We've had lots of different people so far signing up to talk to me. We've got lots of diary dates. We've had four people on already, content providers, DJs, promoters, and we're going to be heading into finding out about the, the, the grisly world of labels. But for yourself, you're coming at it from a couple of different angles, really. Um, DJ uh, and promoter. So um, it'd be nice to talk about those things in a little while. But so everybody knows who you are and what you're about, tell us a little bit about yourself and... Um, where your love for music came from, from the Yorkshire side of life. Okay, so um, Dave Lazenby, 52 years old, born in 1970, dear me. Um, I'm from Sheffield, um, Yorkshire, um, and my love of music is quite interesting. I was brought up in pubs, so uh, about four or five years old, my parents took their first pub. So... I lived a, a, above public houses until I was something like 21 years old. So, um, you know, everyone always, uh, what a lot of people's favorite question is, is where's your mu- musical influences come from? Come from the pubs and the music I used to hear used to come upstairs. Yeah. And I used to get, I used to get bits of absolutely everything played in the pub through the jukeboxes. And, and, and actually, um, I ended up, getting the records from the jukeboxes when um because i used to leave them in the jukebox for a certain amount of time um and then take them out when they were replaced and i ended up with all the records playing all the records upstairs so um very influence yeah varied influence um so so yeah that that's that's sort of early day stuff so that must have that must have created quite a fascination we had um Nick Roger in the other week and he bought a little bag of records with him and we discussed how, um, you know, the artwork or the feel of the vinyl was a real intriguing kind of part of the mixture of audio, you know, visual, because you'd look at these things, um, fascination in terms of like the technology, because back then, like you say, a jukebox is a pretty rare thing to have to be able to access at all times compared mm-hmm. to most people who would sort of have their parents' record player very basic yeah. thing so that must have been um yeah that must have been a great source of of wonderment and and this was back in the days when the pubs used to close between 3 uh p.m and about half past five so i'd come home from school and i would go into the pub and i would um put the jukebox on and i'd have music on and i'd play pool um which is where my my uh affection for playing snooker came from um but um um, you know, I'd have the I'd have the jukebox on in the pub, 
Um, and I got all the records from, from the jukebox. So uh, they're obviously favourites, and there was ones that stuck out for me, but um, I can remember. I've been surrounded by music from sort of five, six years old. So yeah. always, always loved it, by the way, always. So that must have given you quite a broad selection as well of tastes, because, you know, back then, if it went to record, you know, it was obviously important enough that people put money behind it. And if it was obviously going in jukeboxes, that meant there was distribution. So you must have heard pretty much everything from all across the board. You know, one of the first records I remember was Jerry Rafferty, Baker Street. Oh, classic. Um, but, but yeah, that period, ABBA, um, oh my Lord, they're the two, they're the two ones that, that sort of stand out. But you're right. Um, absolutely every type of music. I mean, into into the around sort of seventy eight, seventy nine. I was born in nineteen seventy. The sort of mob rocker thing sort of resurrected again. So I was I was listening to specials, to madness, to the beat, to that sort of stuff. Yeah, and, and on the jukebox, right? Yeah. Um, um, and then actually got a little bit bored of getting the free well they weren't free actually they used to they used to cost us something like 15 pence or something um from from a guy who used to run the jukebox but uh i got a little bit bored of getting the 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 tracks from the jukebox and started buying music when i was about i think it was about nine or ten years old wow um, that's quite early though hmm. well, i guess yeah. if you've been exposed to it like that you you know this is one of the things we we talked about in terms of um what when is the point at which the tastes that you have have been given to you because of your environment or that you've got access to like parents records on the shelf or brothers and sisters and also like you've got their things that are around you and what point do you then say right i've got this but i'm in my head you know i'm looking for something um that stimulates me in a different way and um, so talk about that, your musical journey into buying music. What did you tend to gravitate towards? I gravitated towards the albums of which the singles appeared on that I'd heard on the jukebox. So the likes of Madness, the likes of the Human League, which were obviously massive in Sheffield. And, and you know, when you think of the Human League, it, I, I love that. I've still got my copy of Dare, actually, that still plays. When I put it on, on, on a 1210, it still plays. It's a little bit um, noisy and it's a little bit scratched, but it does still play. And I had a party about four or five years ago on New Year's Eve and I played several tracks on the 1210s <laughs> wow. from it. And it was, it sound, it's, obviously, um, it wasn't crystal clear, but it was more nostalgic. Um, but it was about getting the albums from from those tracks really adam and the ants as well um dare i say that i just did um and, and and again when i look back at that it was just drums right adam and the ants you listen back to adam and the ants it's just yeah 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 this guy loves techno because he was listening to uh to, to that music drums. based heavy music yeah 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 so, so it was more it was more about getting um, I guess delving deeper into the artists than just the hits that appeared on the jukeboxes. On the it's, quite, it, it's quite a familiar era for me because you're exactly the same age as my brother. Um, and as it happens, my, my sister's only really about 16 months younger than him. 
So that era that you're describing is very much the sort of music that that we would, you know, we would hear in our house, but almost retrospectively, because back then, yes, new music came out and new trends came out, but the, it was kind of, it all stayed together for quite a while, didn't it, at that period? It wasn't like now where trends are so fast and change. Um, a lot of the tracks, like you've mentioned, rubbed shoulders with some of the newer stuff. Whenever you went out or in pubs, these tracks, they hung around for years, didn't they, some of them? It wasn't as if they just dissipated after time. Well, I think that's because they were very good. Yeah. I mean, if, if you look at that period, if you listen to tracks like Tainted Love by Soft Cell, you know, I'd still play that now, right? If you listen to the specials, Too Much Too Young, still play that now. Yeah. Um, I think we were very, very fortunate um, to be brought up in that era with some significantly good music, um, especially compared to now, because I, I don't really listen to, to sort of chart music now, um, ever. And I couldn't tell you what's in the charts now, I'm quite proud to say, no. but, but when I do hear it, if, if, it, if, it, if I hear, if I walk past a bar full of 20-year-olds, I think, what are you doing? You know, because I just don't like what I hear. Um, but I think there's longevity in that music because it was good, Danny. So do you do you think that this naturally led on to the types of artists that you wanted to then see live? Um, because I think that's, you know, the fascination I had with a lot of um, bands, especially like the synth pop type stuff that you mentioned. For mm. me, like Pet Shop Boys, Depeche Mode was a big one because my brother listened to it, but I don't think I understood the content of the lyrics, it didn't actually translate that that I would then go and want to see them. I think at that era for me, the music was enough on tape or whatever, and I could just about carry it around. But I don't, I don't personally ever remember my first concert. But it, live music was very much um, happening for you when you were in your teens, wasn't it? My mum and dad took me to see the Drifters when I was about nine. Wow. Eight Jesus. or nine years old. They were a soul band, mm. the Drifters. I don't know whether you've heard of them. And they were absolutely amazing. They did a matinee performance, and obviously my dad was right into them. And we went as a family, and it was incredible. Absolutely loved it. These guys on stage sweating like mad under the lights, yeah. working really hard to entertain everyone. It was absolutely brilliant. Um, and, and you know what? You just reminded me of that. I forgot about that. Which venue was that? Can you remember the venue name? It was at the Fiesta in Sheffield, which became um, which became a club actually um, some time ago. I think it's still now called a club. It's called Tank, which is which actually has pretty big DJs on now. Wow! For the kids, um, but um, but yeah, that that was that was amazing. That was my dad's choice, not mine. Um, but loved it. But as far as my sort of translation from my taste into going to see bands, obviously you didn't. I didn't really go to see bands on my own until sort of like something, something like 17, 18 years old. Um, and I think the first gig I went to see was Hue and Cry. Right, Hue and Cry. Um, and I was really into Hue and Cry because um, probably because of Patrick Kearns' voice, to tell you the truth, really, really sort of clear um amazing 
voice. And even, uh, do you know what? You talk about influences from parents. My, my dad used to hear me listening to you and cry and come in and say, this is brilliant. Um, because uh, it, I think it sort of spanned a generation because he was so talented vocally. Um, but um, yeah, that was my first gig, Ewan Grant. So what age were you when you discovered, you know, what we what we now are all up, sort of obsessed with, the classic sort of, well, it's hard to say dance music really, but I guess it, we always have to use the term house music because there was always some form of dance music around. It wasn't called dance music like we know it today, but when did you first sort of, trip up and fall over house music and go, hang on a second, this is a bit different. And I think the answer to the question is 1986, Farley Jack Master Funk. Wow, there you go. That's, that's proper OG stuff, that, isn't it? Um, it was that. It was that. And it was 86. And, and I, I think I was sort of school-leaning age. <clears throat> and going on and doing other stuff. And I can remember him being on the TV. He was on top of the pops and he sang Love Can't Turn Around. Was it Daryl Pandy who did who sang that? I don't know. Might have been. Um, but Farley, um, the DJ himself, was on uh, top of the pops and he took his shoes and socks off and he, <laughs> he writhed around on the floor. I don't know if you remember. So, yeah. Um, and and then after that, um, it was stuff like S Express. Yeah. Um, it was stuff like Yaz, and then it was stuff like Alice and Limerick, and then off you go. You know, you, you're sort of around by the time by eighty nine ninety, there was a lot of music that, e- even if I didn't know it was house music at the time, was house music. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's quite an introduction, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> Folly Jack Master Funk writhing around yeah. with his socks off. It is. <laughs> Have a look. It'll be on YouTube. Pretty unforgettable. I'd, it's got to be. We've got to do it. I've got to <laughs> see that. That's got to be something to be seen. But I think when we were talking with um, I was talking with Nick last time, um, you know, he mentioned similar sort of thing where um, the music that suddenly found you was growing in favour commercially more than we think because just you saying Top of the Pops, you have to have done something pretty significant to be on Top of the Pops. This isn't somebody giving you a bit of a chance. You know, Top of the Pops was the most mainstream show that people were going to access music, certainly at home on the telly. Um, Mm -hmm. And obviously if they'd broken certain... um, record charts or whatever would would get a green light towards telly um the the difference i guess for a lot of people is that hearing this music it was mixed still in amongst everything else wasn't it it wasn't a case of going oh yeah that fits with this 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 and this so when when did you start to sort of piece together maybe um tracks that you thought this is like this could go with this or i like that and this and this did you start to try and source tapes did you make your own tapes that's a classic mixtapes i i made my own tapes but not from a dj perspective I, I was i used to do that when i was really young actually i was you know i told you i used to get this stuff from jukebox i told you I used to buy buy records when i was really young i used to record stuff and and give my mates tapes from a really young age, really young age. You know, I introduced my mates to 
Deacon Blue, Tabot Dignity, nobody knew who they were. Um, I think it was about 17 who did that. Um, and to my horror, um, they played in Sheffield and all my friends who I'd introduced to this new band went and I couldn't go because I was I was busy with a snooker match and I couldn't go to it. And oh, God. Was quite me then. So I missed it. But <coughs> but from a from a I mean your question is about how did I did I think about actually putting them together in some sort of sequential order that would work and and I guess would sit together? I didn't really. Not not from not not from a house music perspective, not until I actually started to go to clubs where they were playing, you know, the same kind of of music. Um, I didn't particularly think about um as as a DJ would call it sequencing, right? I didn't really think about it in, in that manner until until I started going to, to house clubs. I think, yeah, I, I mean it's probably my question that, that's that's slightly misleading because yeah, as a DJ you do think that. I think where where I was coming from was you could go out and you could buy a blues blues album and it would mm. be mixed blues tracks. It would be Howling Wolf. It would be all the big guys you would expect, and you would be able to go to the shops, arguably H and V, Woolies, or whatever. Go along the rails and go, oh yeah, blues artists, and pick up the tape. Mm. But it was now impossible, wasn't it, to go into mainstream high street shops and source this type of music in any way that made sense, even if there were be it very um what's the word i'm looking for a very um forward thinking type of album it was often a hodgepodge of things that didn't quite match that's that's what i found um again i've mentioned this so many times in conversations that probably people can get bored of me saying it but just the huge advantage to me having an older brother your age was that a lot of the music that I got passed to me, I didn't have to go search for myself. Mm -hmm. When I got, to, and you were saying earlier about when you started to get your own tastes, mm -hmm. you know, where I had to go and source music, a lot of it was sat by the radio, literally listening to really quite rare shows on the radio, pressing stop when the adverts came on, pressing record again when they started. And I kind of like bodged these tapes together from the radio. So I actually did start mixing early in a way using a double tape deck and trying to get on one tape all of this music because I couldn't handle just having like one track. If it did become commercial, it was often like the radio edit, which was like three minutes long. And I, yeah. thought, oh, I just started getting into that and now it's, and now it's finished. <laughs> um, you know, traditional songs obviously are formulated in a way, bridge, chorus, and you get used to that. So that the fact that it goes for four minutes or three minutes, or you hear it on the radio, you've heard the whole song. You, you like it's completed. Whereas this stuff, I think Nick Nick sort of referred to this as being like, Oh, now that bit's finished. What's this bit? What's this bit going on? And it was like the intrigue into it was more than just somebody singing or an instrumental it was like they'd thrown all their toys at the 
at the at the sort of mixing desk and tried to create as much like mad stuff as possible. Yeah, yeah, and I know <clears throat> I know the early the early DJs, um, you know, started to knit those tracks together, and they would either just you know cut them in, or you know the the the, the early guys would would actually start to mix. Yeah, yeah, and, and just mix. I don't do an eight bar mix at the end of a track into the next one and stuff i guess that's that's how stuff sort of started really yeah 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 any, any mobile disco that you heard in the pubs or, or even a lot of the djs in the clubs um early sort of or well, late 80s 90s didn't really mix the, the the music wasn't formulated like that either so what was what was your um what would have been your first sort of clubbing experience then or did you did you um, bypass raves or did you try try a bit of that or stay clear? I, I never went to a rave. Um, so when you say coming, you mean you mean house music? I guess, I guess yeah. I guess I guess where yeah. was the first sort of club that you would associate going to see a you know a DJ? It wasn't mainstream. It was the Music Factory in Sheffield, um, and it was probably a love to be night. Yeah. Okay. Um, and and you know, I was I was pretty late to the parties to tell you the truth because, you know, I loved the music. At, you know, just mentioned like S Express, Yaz, etc. But I didn't really go to any of the raves. I didn't go to any of the early club nights. I didn't go to the Hacienda, which is a massive regret. And I was old enough to go to the Hacienda, and you know, anybody listening to this will probably give me a, a slap. For, for not going right, but I didn't. I, I wasn't. I wasn't that. I wasn't that into it at that time. Mm. Um, I actually started to really develop taste for it, sort of in my early twenties, sort of like twenty three, and then when I went to university, everything changed. I went to university, and I was and I was with people who were four or five years younger than me, and they were all into going to house clubs, and I started going to a few house clubs. This, I'd be about 23 at this time. Um, music Factory, love to be. Uh, I remember actually seeing Farley Jackmaster Funk to, 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 to mention him again uh, with, his, with his shoes and socks on, I think. Um, <laughs> at Music Factory in Sheffield. Oh. Um, and I was, it, it was very strange because I didn't go to those types of clubs. And then once I'd been, once I went, that was it. You know, I hardly went to any of the sort of standard discos that I used to go to prior. Um, I was, I was, I was, that was it. I was, I was sort of transfixed. And you know what? I've actually thought about this quite a lot. And, and I know why I was so taken by dance music, by dance music culture, by house music, the actual music and the, and the feeling. And it is because... Um, I just told you I was, I was brought up in pubs. Um, and it's not an ideal environment to be brought up in, to tell you the truth. You, your parents tend to work really long hours. You spend quite a lot of time on your own. I spent quite a lot of time with my big brother. Um, but also, you're around adults a lot. And you're sort of observing these adults living their lives. Um, and I did spend quite a lot of time in the pub um, from sort of 11, 12-year-old uh, sort of playing pool and darts with all the guys at the pub. And I was just uh, observing everyone else having a good time. I wasn't part of it. When I first went into a house club, 
it was the first time I felt part of the party. I didn't think that I was observing. I, I wasn't sort of like stood behind a, um, a screen, you know, sort of observing some sort of, uh, some sort of experiment. I was actually part of it. Mm. And also, the other thing that struck me was when you went to normal discos, normal nightclubs, you know, sort of thing, close at 2am, kebab and home sort of place, um, there was a DJ who would speak every after every two or three tracks and he'd, he'd make a joke about some, some girl or whatever. Um, <clears throat> and <clears throat> there'd, be, there'd be music. Some of it would be good, some of it wouldn't be. But there would be about a hundred different nights out in that club. Uh, so there'd be 50 or 60 different conversations in that club and some music. Whereas I went into house clubs, one party. One DJ, the music was everything, and everyone was there to enjoy the music. So while they would have come from disparate places, it felt like there was sort of one cohesed sort of thing going on in the room, and I felt part of it. And from that moment, I was pretty much hooked. Yeah, I, I referred to a, a really odd memory that I'd totally forgotten about, which was the Hitman and Her Um last time I was I was speaking with somebody. And the reason I mention it is because what you've just said there is really, really true and fascinating is that there wasn't anywhere that you could see the inside of what was happening in these, in these clubs. The Hitman and Her was the closest thing to it if you watched the telly, but even their version of where they were going to clubs was still a little bit cheesy. And I think you're right that um, the difference between your normal club environment was that the music wasn't the primary interest. The primary interest, like it or loathe it, was to mate with the opposite species. Most people <laughs> want to continue to go somewhere to drink because of the licensing laws yeah. and also copulate. Like that was the primary function and when you went to somewhere with you know a dj playing or a group of friends it was about the music and it was front and center and also yes. the fact that when you got in there the behavior like you're saying you were a sort of observer of this behavior in the pubs yeah um all of a sudden you were no longer the observer you were you were the experiment and everybody acted very freely everybody was different accepting of each other now we could we could talk about how much of that element may have been drugs yes but i always find issue when people just want to go oh it's everybody was on drugs yeah in pubs everybody's pissed there's, there's no difference to me with people being really pissed out their heads and people being on drugs except that when I went to the places where people did take drugs or went to dance music, they didn't have brawls afterwards. They didn't try yeah. and kill each other because so-and-so was looking at his girlfriend. In fact, quite the opposite. You were often dancing with somebody and then they'd introduce you to their boyfriend and you'd end up giving him a big hug and high-fiving. And the whole environment was so different that when you came out, you thought, oh, I can't quite remember what's happened here, but I feel like I've met a lot of people that I like. 
and I've shared an experience that's unique. Unique. Very much so. Everything you just said, and, and like I say, I felt part of it. And I think um, the other thing to note about that period was that during the 80s, there was good music. There was um, some really good music, but, but from a from a party perspective, um, you know, the clubs weren't that good, really, were they? There, there was there was there was some stuff, and, and I was a bit young. But um, the point I'm trying to make here is, I know so many ex-punks that got into house music, got into going to raves because they they turn around to me and say, "This is the best thing to happen since punk rock." Yeah, because it gave them that feeling of belonging, that feeling, that excitement, they look forward to going to clubs like they used to look forward to going to gigs. Um and it was edgy. And it, it was, was it was counterculture. It was it was yeah, it was it. swimming in the opposite direction. And and yeah. you know those groups of people, those cultures, yeah you're right, had had lost that um in nineteen ninety two if you remember Dave was that you might not have been in the scene, but I was very young. I used to buy all the magazines and they used to talk about the Bill of Rights and all the different things that were changing. And this just ignited a lot of people's passion to want to do this more. You know, it, it, it went from kind of raves in fields being shut down. And by and large, the period you're talking about, sort of 93, 94, when the likes of Love to Be um, and the Hacienda had sort of come out of its, of its sort of main era, mm. when all of those... Um, outdoor illegal things went into the smaller clubs. This was just the benefit for for the likes of so many people. Um, you're eight years older than me, but when you first started clubbing, if you say you're about twenty three, I probably already was at fifteen. So we both probably hit the same point where in ninety three, ninety four, the music was amazing, and it wasn't just that you had all the classics now, what we know as classics, they were new at the time. You were starting to get more and more stuff around 1993, left field, orbital, all these weirder kind of more um, experimental sounds creeping in, in amongst it. Um, but I definitely, I definitely want to hone in a little bit and love to be with you because I went a fair few times. Um, Love to Be had brilliant flyers. Do you remember? I do remember some of the flyers. Yes. yes. They were always like Love to Be and they'd have like quite either sort of provocative pictures or cute pictures. And the flyers were always ones to like keep because they were quite cool. Um, and again, you know, we're talking about the sort of visual aspect of clubbing. The flyers were always quite fascinating, weren't they? You got them handed to you as you came out of the club. You literally did keep them because the only place you could go and get what you've just experienced was by going again. True, actually. And, and um, they were pretty much the only places. The, the players were the only way you knew what was happening, unless you bought Mixed Mike, which we all did once we got into it. But but sometimes that day were dated, Mixed Mike. Yep. And do you remember walking out of clubs and getting the flyer packs? Yeah, you know, yeah. They used to pull them all together and you'd get, you'd get like about 30 or 40 flyers in one pack. You'd be like, yes, I know what's happening <laughs> the next month or so. Yeah. And then you'd immediately go home and you'd be planning your next month um, yeah. with them. But yeah, Love to Be did have good flyers. And, and I can remember going to Adelphi in Sheffield to Love to Be um, and also Music Factory. And, and I actually 
they're still going. You know, they're still doing events um, all over the place. And I, and I know the guys pretty well now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know uh, Tony Walker, Mark Dennis pretty well. Oh, they um, were great. They were great residents. They were. They, they, I, I, I've always, always had a lot of time for, for residents because sometimes you would go to a club and they'd got a DJ advertised who didn't rock up and the residents would just take hold of the night and, and, and do what only a resident can do, which is know exactly what to play for that club. Um, and they were really good residents. I think I went to, um, yeah, the Music Factory and the Adelphi as well. Um, see, if, if I went with my brother to Sheffield, from Manchester, it wasn't that far. So in Manchester, you could quite easily go across that sort of M62 corridor. You could go to Leeds or you could go to Sheffield. Um, and often or not, we would do that. When I, you know, it was about 1996, I went to Salford University. Um, <laughs> the only reason I went to Salford University really was because I could carry on clubbing and going to the Hacienda and stuff <laughs> rather than what I wanted to study. I was just, just desperate to get back to Manchester and, and, and be in Golden and Sankey yeah. Soap and do all these things. But we used to go across, um, one of the lads I lived with, um, at uni in, in halls, he was from Sheffield. So we went back there. This was before the kind of gate crusher period. So it was still sort of what I would always call sort of house music still centered firmly on that. Um, but the Sheffield crew were quite good at picking the sort of, I dare I say it's sort of the American side of house and garage, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, US Garage, I guess, or US House, US Garage, I guess they used to call it. And there was a lot of good DJs who used to do that uh, in Sheffield. And they had, I can remember, I can remember, and what's it called? Sunday Best, the forum in Sheffield. And they had the likes of uh, Buckley, who ended up playing, playing at Back to Basics quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, he did. Um, um, and yeah, that, that sort of US, Matt Hardwick, actually, who was resident of Gatecrasher, his first love was always that kind of music and he would play as well, like US House as well. Uh, but it was in that period, yeah, I mean, I mean, it became known for other kinds of music which we could come on to, some, some good, some not so good in my opinion, but you're right, around that time, um, loads and loads of um, um, what I call US House music, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I seem to remember really when you looked at flyers and they listed the DJs for people that didn't know really what that was called, you would sort of see House and US Garage written yeah, yeah, on, on, yeah. on the flyers. And that was kind of like, because that was certainly the, the, the music that I frequented the house for was Graham Park um, yeah. and the residents there. Um, they were playing that style. That is That was really my first pro what I would call proper clubbing experience. I mean, we, we I've talked before about like the Italian house sort of period, which, which probably bypassed you actually. But when I was sort of 13, 14, 15, Italian house was quite big and they were, they was the sort of smaller clubs up in Blackpool would, would play these, this type of music. Some of those tracks that were in that style of music might appear in the mm. more in the more serious DJ clubs, but it was a kind of like a sub a subcategory of clubs. So 
you know, when you when you once you've been to the Hacienda, the sort of mecca of what you think is clubbing. Certainly, as a you know, a northern lad from Manchester originally, it, it was it was strange to deviate from that. But I did find like hard times in Leeds was quite serious about its American US garage. Yeah. I used to, I remember seeing Roger Sanchez there way before Roger Sanchez was ever the Roger Sanchez we know him as today. He was just absolutely, back in 1994, 93, he was incredible. He used to play the back rooms in Cream, um, so did Armin van Helden, and the stuff they did with with the decks was beyond what English DJs could do. Beyond. They could just play. I'll never forget seeing Roger Sanchez at the back of Cream, the cow room, and about it must have been about 94, and he played for about 35 minutes and there wasn't a single vocal or anything. It was all these beats. And then yeah. out of nowhere, he mixed this vocal track in and the whole club went absolutely, absolutely bonkers. But it was in no way, shape or form, anything other than, you know, proper house, chicago house beats. Mm. Um, and I seem to remember that as maybe maybe nostalgically as a bit of a golden era before things really changed. Um, it was almost it was almost like like there weren't. <clears throat> How many genres were there then, Danny? If you think back, you know, uh, and th there weren't there wasn't a significant amount of genres. Was there? there was house and garage, yeah, yeah, techno. There was always techno. Yeah, um, but that that was that was. Um, Very niche, wasn't it? It was it was pretty niche and it was almost well it was what became trans and it was almost quite quite like trans, wasn't it? You know, yeah. the, the sort of the techno around that time. The sort yeah. of Ben Bear stuff was was almost trance, right? Around that time. Um so I think there was less um I wouldn't I wouldn't say the word division was wrong, but there was less there was less genre specific nights because oh, there were less genre. So just the house and garage. And actually on that point, when I was at uni, there was a night called Delve Deeper. And and they used to play um, you know, the, the sort of standard at the time, US House, US Garage. Um, and it was a student night. Um, and they did really well. They they moved it around the city, obviously got to know them because I was going. Um and the interesting thing I noticed, and it's just sort of made me think about that, just 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 you picking up on the genre piece. And I'd not really thought about this, but it's interesting how these conversations sort of prompt you, isn't it? Um, sort of 94, US House, Garage, 95, US House, Garage. One of the DJs at that night was Nick Riley, who ended up becoming a resident of Gatecrasher and part of Riley and Durant, right? So... Throughout that period, as it got towards the back end of our degree, sort of 96, 97, guess what Nick wanted to play at that night? Not US Garage. And by the time, by, by we got to about nine, I think it must have been the late 96 or, or early 97 or so, he was starting to play, Nick was coming on at the end and started to play quite harder stuff. Not particularly trance, because trance just sort of came over around that time and Scott Bond quite famous for bringing trance to, to Gay Crasher around that time. But that club itself, you know, if you think about me attending that club, I actually saw the trans, a, a key transition through that period in Sheffield as well, because obviously trance in Sheffield 
I mean, Trance got big everywhere, but Trance was very big in Sheffield because of gay fashion. That night definitely evolved as musical taste evolved. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think um, because, it, again, it's just we've never talked about this until today that that we are we are very much in the same period with you having clearly gone to uni as an older mm. student in in those days as an older student your time frame is around the same as mine and i remember being in manchester at 96 and of course by this stage like firmly in my record collection was renaissance one Sasha and digweed which yep. in certainly introduced me to a deeper sound even though at the time it was very mysterious music because it was such a big album nearly everybody that knew what they're on about had it mm -hmm. however the northern exposure tour which they did which came to the hacienda and we went to and i went to several other places to see it was still very different music than the stuff that was kicking off in sheffield so i agree with you i think that sheffield played a huge, huge part in what became the English adoption of trance. There was a several reasons that I was never into trance. One was the speed of it. The speed of it was quite alien to me in terms of having come from that, that US garage kind of chunky developing sound. Now that's not to say that there wasn't faster music played by, by Digweed and Sasha, but certainly around 96, the BPMs were still not well over about 128. You know, I'd listened to techno as a kid. I'd listened to hardcore, which is obviously fast, drum and bass, which is fast. But for me, four fours going at a certain speed, just you got the euphoria, understood how people were, were hooked on the kind of scale of it, the massiveness, but it just didn't do it for me in terms of listenability, people dancing. It moved to more people just sort of packed in and shuffling and hands in the air and quick hits. It wasn't for me. Um, we went to Gatecrusher. I could, the, the thing that I can appreciate is that I could appreciate the excitement that for a newer generation were getting the same buzz that I'd had probably years earlier. I was I was ahead of the curve in my age group, really, for the music that I listened to. I think trance swept up a whole new group of listeners that almost bypassed, quote unquote, house music and just went straight to trance. I remember having a conversation with Alistair Whitehead. It must have been in about 2003. He was doing a, a night for the guys that ran a night on a Friday that we had at the club that I was um, assistant manager at. And we'd had different people in on Friday nights trying to run different house nights than the Saturday night, which was kind of established called Choice. And the Friday nights were a mixture of trying to get people like Defected on board. And Defected actually did run nights for us. Anyway, Alistair Whitehead did one of the nights. What used to happen is they would, they would sort of come up, as you can imagine, the, the other DJ would be on and they'd come in at the office in the back, we'd get them a drink and they'd sort of sit down. There wasn't much room at the back of the, the club that we worked in. They used to just come and sit in the in the office. So I was just started chatting to him. And I said, oh, Ali, like, I've been to see you several times. Uh, love to be, Hacienda, you know, all these different places. And he was like, oh, yeah, they were the days. And I said to him, so <laughs> I, don't, I don't see you playing that much. And he said, well, the difficulty is I kind of refuse to play this European sound. 
I, I, I could. He said, I don't really get it. He said, I prefer to see, um, he called it sort of boys and girls on the dance floor dancing and having fun. He said, and I don't really see how you can do that when the music's so fast. So he mm. said things changed dramatically for him and his bookings because that sort of US house and garage and then the UK house music sort of fell out of favour. And he said, you know, wasn't playing as many gigs. It wasn't as popular. He felt like he'd had his time in the sun. And I said, oh, it's just such a shame because my best memories are of nights where you would get all sorts of DJs on a bill and it would sort of work. It sort of would work together. Mm. And I think when, like you say, a new genre comes in, very much that changed and you'd get clubs kind of putting things on the bill that all did match. And I can remember Gatecrusher in particular sticking to its guns, almost saying, right, well, this is what we're doing. Yeah. And I guess for them, fortunate that the CD era was massive. So it was normal for people to go out and buy mixed compilations. They did very well on that. I went back, actually, like you, as I went back to university. I left Salford. My parents split up. I had a really rough couple of years bouncing about couch surfing years and I, and I sort of got myself together and said All right, I'm going to go back to uni and I went back to uni in Cheltenham so I was like 22 when I went back to uni then I was kind of introduced to the two-step garage trance or what I was into which was this very very different house sound and in 1999 even like four or five years after my sort of clubbing had started you now had six or seven genres. Yeah, yeah. And people were in that camp. They were not even budgeting. It was like, no, no, I'm going to a, I'm going to a garage night on the Tuesday. I'm going to a trance night on the Thursday. They, th th that was it. And I thought, oh, wow. Like, I remember when you used to go and you'd hear a bit of everything all mixed up. Yeah, true, true. And that, that sort of stopped. Um, it was a shame. Yeah, and 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 at the time, obviously, Gatecrasher started with a house night, yeah, and and evolved into a trance night. I, I I think the, I think the story is, Scott went to uh, the Netherlands, picked up some records, basically. I think I think that's basically what happened, and and started to play them, towards the back end of the of the night. So Gatecrasher, seriously, okay. um. People just add it. And, well, yeah, yeah, and, and 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 then you know, obviously that influence grew and grew and grew, and and um, you know, by sort of ninety seven, ninety eight, particularly ninety seven, you know, you had Judge Jules, Serpentine, Tall Paul, all those guys playing the Gate Clasher in the Republic, which was a brilliant venue, absolutely amazing venue, brilliant sound system, fantastic um, main room. And it was just pure euphoric, and and I liked it. You know, you said you didn't like the music. I I did. I I really liked it because I've I've always been a fan of quite banging music, mm. and at, at that time, you know, it it was pretty banging. In my in in my for my taste, I thought it was pretty banging. So I mean, I, I, I I'm not I'm not afraid to 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 admit and also say that you know a huge huge part of one of the most popular eras for me of clubbing was going every week to see Oak and Fold in the Courtyard of Cream. 
Yeah. And there's no way I can stand here and say that a lot of the music he played wasn't trance. It was very much of its time. But I think for me, I was swept up in the Perfecto era. I think I was firmly in the sort of Perfecto camp, which had come from like your Quiver records. In my record collection, I had every single Perfecto record there was. Oakenfold had his Goa trance, which was another level. Let's not even mention that for now because it's not relevant, but that was like one thing. When you went to see him, he would go through the gears. You would hear a lot of tracks that Sash would play, Digweed would play, played by Oakenfold. Yeah. And it was only really towards the very end of, of Cream that, let's say, a certain percentage of, of Oakenfold's records would really be trance. Yeah. But again, I'd, I'd sort of snobbed out. I'd been and seen Nick Warren, Digweed, Sasha, Seaman playing really intelligent, different music and was yeah. not was not in it for the thrills and spills. By then I'd been DJing about three, by 99 I'd been DJing probably for about three or four years. Mm. Or did it as a kid, bought like the odd record, we all took turns in, in each other's bedrooms, but seriously started to do it at the back end of Manchester. And, you know, my back cap was all like AMPM records, it was all very much the dub sides of the big AMPM tunes right through to the American stuff and then would buy a lot of Perfecto. The, the access to the records as well, some Manchester sort of Piccadilly records, they, they didn't buy Transin. That, yeah. that that didn't happen. So you're right, I think the era exploded in multiple directions. The explosion of dance music itself probably peaked in about 95 when, of course, Pete Tong did the Essential Selection live on radio. That was just so pivotal at that time because exactly what we said suddenly you could listen on the radio to exactly what was hearing in the club and it was exciting it was exciting to hear other clubs around our country going absolutely mental agree and did you go to some of the nights i did and, and you, you know that there'd be a dj on and and it come to sort of like 12 o'clock and they'd sort of like stop the music and say, we're live in five, four, three, two, one. And Pete being Pete would go, we are, this is Radio 1, we are live at Back to Basics or wherever. And everyone would be cheering. And um, I remember those nights well, particularly, actually, it reminded me specifically of Back to Basics because they used to do quite a bit of Basics. Yeah. Um, and uh, Which was one of my favourite clubs, actually. I mean, I, I, I stopped going to get Crasher about 99. And incidentally, at Gatecrasher, you know, we had Sasha. We had... Yeah, that's Warren. true. That is you true. Know, we had Sander Kleinenberg used to play loads. And Gatecrasher went through a sort of prog period for about four, five, six months. But you know what? Lost its crowd. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm aware of that. Listen, I don't want to... I don't want to... I don't want to bash the crash, you know, I'm not going to no, 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 no. And, and say it, it because I think it was important for the scene in general. I think it did a lot of good, especially for the North of England to have such big things happening. You know, everybody used to go on and on about your kind of ministry of sound and people would be very focused on what was happening in London. But for the North of England, you know, clubbing culture was, was massive. It was, it was everything. You talk about it being big, to tell you the truth, I got 
um, a little bit peeved with it after a bit because it used to be that me and my mates could get in gate crasher most weeks or pretty much every week. And then there was this explosion. And the next thing we knew, there were six coaches outside. Yeah, yeah. And you couldn't get in because yeah. everyone had turned up at nine o'clock and the place was full. And you're like, hang on, I think we're here every week. Yeah. Um, and you literally, you got took over. But that was a massive wave, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, it, all of a sudden, it was kind of like... It went overground, really. Yeah, yeah, but it was it was safer to... I mean, I remember Dave Seaman did an uh, interview. I can't remember who it was with, but it might have been super progressive. And he, he sort of said, you know, at one point, the only reason you might travel to another town from your own town was for football. And yeah. that, would in, that would incite riots, scraps, all sorts. <laughs> you know, so it was like literally the dark ages you would go to another town and you'd be like outlaws whereas clubbing part of the excitement was that you kind of went to these strange little towns you're very fortunate to have been in sheffield you know i had to travel to manchester blackpool had some clubs um and certainly sasha did an early stint of his career in blackpool but i was far too young really to to, to pick up on that sasha era which was like 91 92 yeah the coach sort of the coach tours and stuff like that was a game changer and out of town as so to speak come into clubs probably was quite strange for people in manchester or liverpool that were that were experiencing a kind of i, I dare I say it's a horrible word to use but like almost a contamination because you feel very proud of something when it's yours but the only way it's going to get bigger is for it to spread and i guess that means other people coming along it was tourists really let's be honest yeah, <laughs> and, yeah and, and tourists I, I once met a guy from australia in gay crusher and and he said that he'd he'd always wanted to come to england um but he'd actually planned his trip to england and as part of his trip to england he was going to gay crusher wow and he'd come from australia i'm thinking give over but but he had because he was so famous at the time though wasn't it you know yeah. I mean he was very very famous at the time it got a little bit um, it got populated by a, a lot of out of towners which I had nothing against I was a little bit more concerned about some of the behaviour of some of the people in there to tell you the truth um, and the music got a little bit it sort of peaked ninety eight and was pretty good and Paul Van Dyke was amazing and I used to love his sets, but it started to go a little bit off piece and and frankly, I was, you know, sort of was a bit older. I was like twenty eight in ninety seven, ninety-eight. Um the young kids were just taking too many drugs. And and they were falling over on the dance floor. Literally. At the side of you, you're dancing, and the next thing someone hits the floor. And I'm like, I don't want to be here. Well, you know? it was it was also you've got to you've yeah, you're right to mention this because you put it in the cult in the cultural sort of mixer of what was going on and the and, and the context of what was happening at the time was huge swathes of people trying to get in clubs, ramming the clubs full, you know, higher door prices, um, bottles of water starting to cost more money, and people did used to take a lot of drugs. They were boiling hot. You were rammed in clubs. There wasn't like that much room to dance. The so body heat was huge, and it was kind of crazy. I mean, there was definitely periods um, 
towards that sort of era in the back room at Cream where people, you would see lots of people fainting, lots of people yeah. overdoing it and just like masses of people really, really hot going absolutely bananas. But let's be honest, Dave, when the BPMs are at 130 and <laughs> every single track has these massive, massive breakdowns, sound systems were getting better, the music was getting louder. It was a, it was a change. And people didn't really look out for each other like they used to do. There was a little bit of that clubbing ethos of keeping you around somebody that looked a bit like lively. The sort of some of the clubs in the mid nineties still had seating, chill out areas, yeah. places to like relax in between sort of rooms where people sort of sat on the floors and could have a breather. And yeah. all of that towards the bigger commercial marketing machine kind of was just floor space that could be bodies paying tickets um and it all be it was it was we've got to remember it just became hugely commercially viable for people to put these things on it did um obviously not like nowadays but it but it did but 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 great Casher did um, from a sheffield perspective great Casher for me you know it had its day sort of 2000 or so yeah um and, and i personally my personal journey moved back into house music um and predominantly back to basics in leeds mm. um but there were several good house nights in sheffield that that you know the likes of sam brown used to run michael hush and you know really credible and they had some really good djs on but i was taken to back to basics by a mate of mine um and that was it because you know, once I got to back to basics and they got residents like Ralph Lawson. Yes. Who is, remains possibly the best resident DJ I've ever seen. The most fluid, slick, amazing DJ, honestly. And and I just went to see I went to see him every week. And 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 it might be basics used to mix it up at that time. It might be Pete on one beat at one week, and then it might be um, Eddie Richards, you know, the week after the, the onset, the original, the, the sort of invention of tech house around that time. Yes, sort of early noughties. Um, and actually, here's, here's an interesting one. I actually went to a wiggle night at Back to Basics. Um, yeah, yeah, you're smiling. Uh, Eddie Richards, uh, Terry Francis, it might be Nathan, you know, I don't know whether Nathan, it might be Nathan Coles, I'm not too sure, but I went to um, I went to the front because obviously, you know, we, we are train spotters and we want to see what the DJs are doing. And they were playing all these tunes and they got the the the, the sliders of the 12 10s up at minus five. And I'm thinking, what are they doing? What are they doing? Everything's about minus five, minus four. They were playing techno, slowing down techno in a house club. They were literally inventing tech house. Yeah. Literally. Yeah, that um, was quite exciting because it because again it's this it's this almost like this is the this is the thing I find right is that you've got a nice mix of soon as something becomes commercial, the underground wants to take it back down. Soon as something's cramming clubs full of two thousand people, people want a private three hundred capacity venue gig with a DJ that's. And I think this is where my heart really lies is is it's not in the big spectacle. It's in it's in the intimate kind of about the music, about a, a DJ taking you on a journey. And and that that era like of different sort of experimental music, certainly moving into 2001, 
kind of like fabric appeared, didn't it, on the scene? And Terry Francis, Lee Burridge, um, d- different DJs playing a very different sound. James Lavelle, very different sounding type of music, a mixture of, like you say, deep house, techno, kind of sometimes breaks, sometimes almost kind of bumpy, dubby type stuff that yeah. was refreshing. It was it was all of a sudden refreshing and back to being groovy rather than melodic and, and euphoric. Particularly Fabric was sort of anti-establishment, wasn't it? It was really early to book DJs that you'd never heard of and actually made a point of booking DJs that you'd never heard of, even though you're involved in the scene. Do you remember? You know, I, I think I saw Ricardo Villalobos there. Um, it might have been their first birthday. I went to Fabric's first birthday. And, and interestingly enough, they uh, they gave everyone a tea towel on the way out. <laughs> it had got a picture of, of the main DJs. It's a picture of Terry Francis and a picture of Craig Richards on, on a tea towel. Um, with a tea towel? Yeah, yeah Brilliant. a tea towel. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. Uh, I, I, you know what? I, I bet my... Um, I bet my ex-wife got it as part of the divorce, but she but she nicked it as she was leaving the house. But oh, no, no, um, longer do you, no longer do you get a bundle of flyers, you get a tea towel. Not a tea towel. But that period, you know, I love that period as well. You know, Fabric remains one of the best clubs I've ever been to. Basics remains definitely the best regular night I ever went to. You know, I went to Sankey's. Um, I went, obviously, did the whole of these things and stuff. But in the UK, particularly Basics, the, the quality of the music, the attitude as well leads very different Sheffield. Mm-hmm. Dave Beer leaving the bar, opening back to basics while 6 a.m. when it was supposed to shut at two back in those days, couldn't be bothered. Just literally couldn't be bothered. Just keep serving. You know, uh, which was for a Sheffield lad, I'm thinking, why are these people walking around with my bottles of beer at 4 a.m.? But Dave literally wasn't bothered. You know, it was just all about the party for him. And in basics, there was, like I said, there was different time, types of DJs. I saw Danny Ramplin. Um, they had Carl Cox for their birthday party, and, and, and it was a pyjama party, and everyone turned up in pyjamas, and Carl Cox turned up in pyjamas, um, which, was, which was pretty mental. <laughs> that night, actually, I said to Dave Beard, who walked past me and said, uh, Dave, uh, what time is Cox on? And he just looked at me. It just said when he when he actually wants, and I'm like, oh my god, that era, you know, you, you wouldn't get that now. You no. know, if you went to a big event and you said to the promoter, "What time is Sasha on? Or what time is John Digweed on?" They'd say, "One minute past four to one minute past six. Yeah, wouldn't they? Yeah, you know what I mean. At this stage, you, you you're as seasoned a clubber as the next person. Mm-hmm. At what point did you decide to turn to the decks yourself? What made you suddenly take a different direction and say, right, this is something that I'm going to pursue a bit differently? It was around the sort of gate pressure time around 98, 99, I think, got the first decks. And interestingly enough, you know, the music that I that I bought um, wasn't trance, it was prog, because I, I, by that time I was... Um, fully fledged member of the Global Underground Club, um, you know, and, and was sort of thinking, I need to go and see these DJs. I'd seen Sasha, I'd seen Big Weed, I'd seen Nick Warren, 
uh, Sander Kleinenberg and stuff. I need to go and see them more. I mean, they, was, they didn't really play in Sheffield. They used to play the gate crash. Um, but around that time, and, and I thought to myself, I, you know, I love this music so much. I fancy having a go uh, and spinning a few tunes. And I got some Stanton belt drives. <laughs> um which were which were that good you didn't have to use the pitch control because you just used to push the record. <laughs> Do you remember doing that? Did you ever have some belt drives? Of course I had belt drives. I had belt you didn't I don't want to talk to DJs who didn't start on belt drives. You know, when when the when these people say, Oh yeah, you know, I my first pair of deck like who gets techniques <laughs> for their first decks? Nobody. You can't afford anything. If you did get techniques for your first decks, you missed the wonder of using them for the first time after using belt drives for two years. <laughs> because, because I was thoroughly confused for 30 minutes. The first time I played 12 tens, I'm thinking, oh my God, what is this? What is this? What is this? And after 30 or 40 minutes or so, I was, you know, Danny Tanaglia, I think. Um, it, it was just, how much more easy is this? Yeah, it was. It's an interesting point. This I haven't discussed this yet with anybody else on on these conversations, and this will probably this will probably I've got just had a notification come up, so I'm going to give you a heads up in a minute about the time. So I haven't had this conversation yet with anybody. This will intrigue people. When <laughs> when you start DJing, so forget the music you're into, forget it all. Talk about the actual technical part of it. You have listened to the music, you know what you're doing, you buy the records because you like them, and you afford the kit that you can afford. And it's a noisy business, so it's not as if you can do it nice and quiet in the other room while either the girlfriend you live with or the parents you live with just go, oh, he's having a great time in there. It's a noisy business. And probably like somebody learning to play the violin, it's a painful experience for both the listener and the <laughs> practitioner because the bit that you simply have to go through is the awfulness of learning to mix. Yeah. And on a belt drive, you're dead right. On a belt drive, it, it, it was about learning that, that amount of touch on the center. Cent- yeah. Or, or, or on the edge of the record, it had it, yeah. it is, was as much to do with how much pressure you applied yeah, as anything. Because if you could mix, and I always remember this, I always remember when you were younger, you bought 90 minute tapes because you wanted 90 minutes, 45 each side. Yeah. When you learned to DJ, you went for a 60 because if you stuffed it up on the first side, you only had to mix for half an hour before you could do it again. Or you could mix for half an hour and then you could have like a quick rest and then, pl- I mean, and then play the tune again. If you did a 45-minute each side mix and you cocked it up at 37 minutes, you just wanted to smash your house up. I'll I tell you what, I, I bet this happened to you because it happened to me. You're doing a mix, right? You're recording it on the, on the tape deck and you do a really, really good transition or mix or whatever you want to call it, you look at the tape deck and it's stopped. Yeah. And you miss the transition that you did. <laughs> it's not even on the tape. And, and you flip it over cool. really quick. And you, and you try to sort of, and you hit my again. Oh, but, but back to your point, yeah. 
I I bought my first Technics off my friend. Uh, I've said this before, I can never remember, I need to ask them. It was Baz or Gaz. The three of us all own the same pair of decks, essentially. But the kind of robustness and sturdiness, and obviously the pitch, because um, even the pitch on my belt drives was pitch like that. It was, it, right. was, it was from left to right. Okay. So it was like a belt drive. And the, this is my first decks. The pitch <laughs> was like a little wheel that you had to whiz to one way or whiz to the other. Oh, they were the, they were the crappiest decks in the world. So when you suddenly got to Technics, there was actually a period, I think of about a month, where I thought, oh, I've made a mistake. I spent all this money. And I couldn't quite get to grips with it because I was trying to use the spindle. I was trying to touch the vinyl too much. And I wasn't relying on using the pitch and my finger to move the record. But when it clicked, it just suddenly clicked. And you're right. It was kind of like then it became an industry standard. When I started playing in clubs and I started getting gigs, I occasionally had to come across Vestax, which yeah. was a bit, which was a bit like... It's, big, it's the equivalent of driving a geared car and then suddenly find yourself in an automatic. It was like everybody yeah. go, oh, these are easier. And you go, no, they're not. No, they're not. And they if you don't remember, they used to have a little tiny, um, they used to have a little tiny um, switch that you could flick that would do the equivalent of you touching the record. And they'd have the pitch on the right-hand side and then they had this little thing and they were just... They were just loose caboose. They never felt solid. Everything felt wishy-washy, light, like it was moving. And you would flick this little thing, and I, I couldn't stand them. But one of the places I was a resident, they were the decks. So at the sort of peak time of me playing in about the year 1999 to 2003, I would play in these four different venues. I had Technics at home, Technics at one of the places, and then two different sets of different Vestacks at these different clubs and you know when we talk about modern clubbing now and uh, you know mixing is one of the, the main things i concentrate and i've always been really keen on my mixing i i have learned it the, the hardest way to do it the hardest way especially with melodic music where we, we you could you know if you touch the play it didn't just take the beat out it took the whole like yeah. melodic parts of the track totally out of whack it was yeah it was hard work i can imagine you stood looking at both tunes thinking which one do i manipulate yeah yeah because if you manipulate the wrong one you get that lovely whirring sound that you just don't uh, that sounds horrendous i don't know about you but um that's a really good question that's a really good question i would i would love to ask a lot of djs because ultimately what happens is or happened with vinyl was that you had to know the record of where to yep. put it on, on the pitch. So you could be playing a record that was minus two with a record that was plus four. And obviously modern sort of equipment that just doesn't figure you move the pitch to whatever the pitch is, or you use, or you sync or use tempo or whatever you use, but you, you're right. You would look at the record sometimes. You would have to know 
I need to slow the left one down. And if I do that, I either need to speed the right one up or vice versa. But you couldn't just be sticking your hands on it unless you were pretty sure what yeah. you were going to do was was right. Or, or it was really light. You know, you had to be really light. And, and I saw some DJs who were really good at just, just um, really lightly moving the pitch on the 12 tenths, just yes. nudging them. Yeah. You know, and, and, and they just literally just nudged them with their fingernails. Yeah. It, it was um, always a nightmare near zero, though, wasn't it? Because it got trapped. Oh, because with the, yeah, yeah, zero yeah. Zero had did like a groove, and it was like, oh, no. Yeah. And, the, and the light would flicker, and you'd go, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because they yeah. Yeah, great fun. But I, I once played on, uh, I think I maybe once or twice played on Best Decks. And, uh, oh, dear. Yeah, you're right. Um, nightmare. Yeah. When you use 12 10s, nightmare. I actually thought the torque was stronger, but the deck wasn't as strong. No, it wasn't and sturdy. You, manipulate it. you know what I mean? So it was sort of like... The plate was slightly raised, wasn't it? The, the, the sort yeah. of technique had the big feet and the big plate. And the, mm. the record deck itself almost sat in the te into the, the main part of the Technic decks, whereas the Vestax was slightly raised up. So you, so you would almost, from memory, the record would often be over the lip. I forgot that. Yeah. And that's I think that was part of this silly little switch that they'd put on there was that that's what they thought you would do instead of touching the record. But once you'd been on Technics, you couldn't get your brain to not want to touch it. Didn't didn't Carl Cox do some sort of endorsement for Best Acts? Probably, yeah. I'm sort of thinking back. I can imagine with his style, he smashed quite a lot of them up. Yeah. <laughs> he needed an endorsement. They were never for me. The mixes are all right. Yeah. The mixes yeah. were pretty good, but... Uh... There was a right nice rot rotary one. We're getting a bit, uh, we're getting a bit geeky now. Remember those rotary mixes that Best Acts did? Yes, really they were. Okay. But yeah. more of more of a more of a thing you would have in your own than something you'd yeah, want yeah. To, like attacking a club when you're you're playing a mad set. So Dave, we've we've kind of chewed the fat about the nineties and the and the early noughties, um, which I think will resonate with a lot of people. Um, but what about the kind of, I know it sounds crazy to say, what about the last 20 years? What's What's been your journey to where you are today? Obviously, got into DJing. I didn't play many venues, maybe two or three venues. Um, I've had about, I think about seven or eight years off from, from, from DJing. And I started again in lockdown. But prior to that, um, I just viewed it as a hobby, which I still do, to tell you the truth. Um, um, and I'd sometimes play the after parties after we've been clubbing or, or sometimes go around to people's people's places or birthday parties and, and, and just do, do you know, an hour or two here and there. So, but, but at, at that time, originally, you know, once I'd mastered the 1210s, um, he said jokingly, I, I, I wasn't, I never saw myself playing in a big club, never saw myself being on, on a decent, sort of standard flyer i just thought oh this is a hobby i do this they're djs that's what they do uh leave them to it and, and i never really even thought about um doing anything too serious djing to the degree but um sort of fast forward um to 
lockdown. And I mean, everybody stayed in for how long? How long did we stay in for? A long time. And um, we're looking for things to do. Um, and the the twelve tens were pretty much gathering dust. Um, I'd actually originally I'd sold my twelve tens to a producer uh, previously, and I, and I lent my cousins um, just to do a couple of parties at home. Because like every now and again I played, but like not not loads. Um, and my girlfriend at the time said, um, "You need to get those uh, those twelve tens out and actually show me that you can DJ." Because you keep saying you can DJ, and I've not seen evidence of it. <laughs> so. No, it's true. It's true. Um, uh, so, so I got the twelve tens out, um, and it was first time. I'm thinking, oh, my lord, this is a bit rusty. Um, but after a couple of a couple of times playing the twelve tens, I'm like, I, I know why I enjoyed this, you know. And um, the next thing, I'm getting bored of the vinyl. Wanted to play different stuff, and. Um, I decided to get a controller and I actually called someone for some advice um, as to which controller to buy, if you remember. And I that was you. Remember. I do remember. Yeah, I do remember. I think you, you'd, you'd very much come, to, you know, when we when we discussed all that, you'd pretty much done a similar route than me. I'd, I'd had this idea in my head and this is this is pivotal to a lot of how, I guess maybe even you, you know, without putting words in your mouth, I guess how you feel and how I feel about the scene or where we're at today is that one of the things that I decided was to kind of, this is something I did when I was younger. I need to grow up and stop doing it. This is not a serious hobby to have as a person approaching midlife. I'd come up with this crap. And basically coming up to the age of 40, I said to my wife, and we were fortunate that we've got the space. I still had a portion of records left, probably about about 500. I'm going to get decks. I really was excited about it. But what happened was the opposite. What happened was I went, oh, I realise I love music, but I don't actually miss this physical act. People get all caught up and teary-eyed and you could have a debate with a million people on social media about vinyl there's this idea that vinyl is this it's like the ten commandments it's like god gave us vinyl i have understood it and i have collected records and i have mixed like we've just saying on the bloody weirdest and most wonderful different you know belt drives vestax everything for me after years of sitting down and doing mixes on Logic and Acid Pro with a cup of tea in the warm with my headphones on and able to make brilliant mixes, suddenly stood in my garage, freezing, waiting for the point to mix the record was not exciting. And I was like, ah, yes, I like hearing this record again. Yes, I like the, the fact that I could come in here and do this, but am I getting anything out of it? And I was sort of mixing the same four or five records over and over. Yeah. It probably took two hours. And I thought in two hours, sat down, I could have made a five-hour mix. It just <laughs> for me it just didn't it didn't make sense. So anyway, back to you. When you phoned me and we talked about the controller very much you'd 
contacted me in in a period where I was fully embracing what the newer technology could do for you as a music yeah. lover who wanted to mix music. Yeah, very much so. And 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 I, I like I said, the 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 twelve tens they needed servicing. They weren't particularly working well, and I thought, uh, and also. I started ordering tunes off Discogs, and I'm like, my bank balance is going to disappear like lightning if I if I continue doing this. And I thought, you know what, I might as well buy a bullet and get some digital stuff. And, and I'd never, um, I think I, I think I touched a CDJ. I went to an after party one night with Hybrid, Mike and Chris, who had played in Sheffield, and my mates knew them, and and there was some. CDJs in the corner, and I and I pressed a few buttons, and this horrendous noise came out of, of one of them. And one of them walked over and said, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "I don't know." <laughs> and, you know I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what I've done. Just turn it off, please. I'm now going to sit in the corner. That's what I'm talking But like, um, so I, I had no idea what it would be like playing on digital DJ equipment until it came, and I, and I got it out of the box. No idea, and and. Obviously, I had a preconception that was based on two, two, two decks and a mixer, right? And, and you get it out of the box, and it looks like two decks and a mixer. There's jog wheels that look like vinyl. You've got your, you know, you've got your um, your mixer in the center with your EQs, which were all familiar. Um, but I was, I'll be honest with you, I was frightened of it for the first ten. 15 minutes and then after the first 15 minutes i thought why is this so easy because because the hardest thing to do um especially if you've not played for a long time is to accurately split tunes and accurately beat match um you know if, if you if you're DJing all the time on on, on 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 vinyl then you get used to it and you get really quick at it don't you but you've got to keep doing it because if you don't keep doing it it goes yeah yeah, yeah. And whereas, you know, I've got this controller out, this tiny controller out, and I'm like, I can see the BPMs. And, and, and I instantly thought, how much less stressful would that be in front of a crowd <laughs> when you can see the BPMs? And then you can start thinking about doing different things and start thinking about, you know, when you're gonna when you're gonna bring the next tune in, what you're gonna play after. Because when I was playing on vinyl, always played on vinyl, I was quite consumed with making the next mix right because I'm like you, and I'm quite obsessive with getting the mixes as good as the Global Underground CDs that I that I used to listen to over and over and over again. So I was really enthused when I got this 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 controller. Like, oh my lord, it's so much easier, and it is. Let's be honest, it is. And you see a lot of. Um, uh, you know, the, I think you were just mentioning about vinyl and people saying, "Oh, it's the be all and end all and everything." I think there is some some anger in a lot of people that have been DJing for for years and years and years who are seeing younger people or new people come onto the scene using this new technology and get into a certain standard pretty quickly without having to do the grunt work and and work you know work the twelve tens for six months, twelve months to actually know what they're doing on them. And I think they're probably quite fearful. Of those young kids saying through it's not their fault these things show the bpms and it's not their fault that there's a sync button either and i'm not against the sync button at all either because in my opinion what comes out of the speakers is the most important thing yeah yeah agreed 100 agreed 
Um, but it, it, it's a lot easier. And it gave me, you know, immediately, I'm like, oh, my God, this is brilliant. I could record without a tape deck. <laughs> so yeah. speak straight to the record box. And, um, and, and, the, and the music was so much cheaper. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, at the time, it was um, about not being on that controller um, four or five hours a day, because I would have been. Um, if I could have done, yeah, it was just, it was just and then I think you realize you missed it, and then you think, Well, hang on a minute, there's all this music I can get as well. So, if I want to, um, you know, I used to play breaks, um, new school breaks back in the day. I thought, Well, I could do, I can get loads of breaks stuff, yeah, I can get loads of house, I can get loads of prog. If I want to do something different, I can do something different. Whereas when you were DJing vinyl, if I said to to you, oh yeah, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to get some breaks. I'm going to I'm going to pull together a, a two hour mix, hundred quid, maybe yeah. more. Yeah, it's it's yeah. yeah, it's totally different. It's like chastising somebody for, for for you know somebody turns up on a motorbike and you say, sorry son, that's cheating. You should be riding a bike. What? So I'm going to puff and pant uphill, and I'm going to struggle. I'm going to have to oil the chain, and I'm going to have to like get myself there and make sure that I've eaten enough food, or I'm just going to arrive on time as quick as I can. Like it's just technology and the advancement of things is is doesn't make you less of a skilled person for riding a motorbike because you can't or you didn't learn to ride a bike. You know you know where I'm going with this. It's like right. if people start I... from riding a motorbike, that's just where they've started. It's not their fault. Right. Agree. And it, and it's not their fault if they've never if they've you know what? They might not have even learned to beat match. They might not have even learned to split tunes. The point is, you don't need to. We've moved forward purposefully a chunk here. You and I had that conversation. Off you went. We experienced uh, lockdown. And then both of us, after lockdown, have clearly decided to take our sideshow on the road, so to speak. Yeah. Tell us about your exciting future with what you're doing in Sheffield now. We are pretty much rebuilding the progressive house scene in Sheffield from the floor up because nobody's done any progressive or melodic um, in Sheffield for quite a long time. You know, there's been the odd night. You know, I think my mate Lee Freeman book, Sasha, sort of, oh, I can't remember, it's probably about 15, 10, 10 years, but it's 10 years ago since... Sasha last night in Sheffield. Sheffield is predominantly, it, it's well known for trance, and, and trance is actually uh, making a bit of a comeback. Um, Scott Bond is actually doing a night in Sheffield in, in April. Wow. Um, so, you know, which which will do well because there's the old, old, the old gate question mark. Sheffield is also well known for um, what's become known as Baseline, which was Speed Garage back in the day. Yeah, there was one club in Sheffield that was really famous uh, called Niche for 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 Speed Garage, which became baseline. So there's loads of there's quite a few events, and they get so many people. I mean, honestly, your eyes are sort of your eyebrows are going up, but but they get big crowds for baseline Sheffield, which is a bit you know from my from my perspective, nothing against anyone personally, but but not my style of music. So we're pretty much. Um, having to re-educate, really. Um, and, you know, I've done a couple of things. I, I set up a night with uh, Dan Bumby, who's one half of Dan and Dan. 
six o'clock game recordings. Um, and we did a, a free event in Sheffield, which went down pretty well. I think we got about 70 people in at one point, which was pretty good uh, on a Saturday night in Sheffield. Um, that was pretty good. Um, and of course, um, I'm doing the stuff with the uh, secluded events with uh, Stuart Higgins. Yeah. Um, and and what what Stuart is doing, to tell you the truth, you know, Stuart is um is really attacking it. We had a good event in August with Dave Seaman and Quiver. That went down really well. Um, you know, the, I, I can't remember two DJs like that from the from the prog scene being being on in Sheffield for certainly those two as well are still very much what I would describe st- still as underground. DJ. Yeah, and, and you know what? It was a great night. It was it was for me personally, it was it was amazing because you know, like I said to you, when I when I used to DJ prior to the lockdown, you know, ages ago, I never really saw myself on a flight like that. And I certainly never saw myself yeah. stood in the DJ booth with Dave Seaman saying, What do you think of these monitors? Do you like <laughs> because they, you know, we were all sort of like having a, having a chat about the monitors. You just think, is this me? This is a bit weird. Um and it was a really good night. Everyone had a good time, got good numbers, um, and happy smiling faces. So that was great. Um, we were looking at trying it, and, and the way I work with 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 Stuart, it's his night. School the events worldwide is his night, but he's from Manchester. I'm from Sheffield, so I sort of help him with a bit of local knowledge, really. Yeah, um, knowledge of the local DJs who who play our kind of music knowledge of the local scene, the local people, etc. Yeah. Uh, so we speak quite regularly about about this, that, and the other, and what nights we should do, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um we were trying to get something in um around November, December, but but didn't quite happen. Um but we've now got this year um what I think is going to be a really exciting year because if if you look at the scene now We've got this event in uh, this month, March 25th, uh, Network in Sheffield with um, Lexicon Avenue, Steve Parry, Higgins, and a guy called Dave Gurnham, um, who myself and Dan had to play at our end of the life night. Um, so that'd be good on the 25th. And we are planning several events this year, rather than, if, if you think about how the scene works at the moment, and um, you know, you're doing this um, in Newcastle. You're organising regular events to try to create a crowd, yeah. To try to try to create a band of people who are going to um, regularly attend your events, and and you create a scene, yeah. And Stu is is very much trying to do that. So, you know, we've got some. Or he has got some really exciting DJs lined up for numerous events in Sheffield this year. So this one in in, in March it is the first one, but there's more to come, and it, and he's really going for it, you know. And and he's talking to the some very very good DJs. Danny, I'm, I'm I'll be really excited to to see the night, whether whether I play or not. To tell you the truth, um, I'll be there. Yeah, it's, it's it, I'm excited for you because I think there's two. The, the, we discussed it earlier. There's different levels of this scene. 
there's there's the there's the upper echelons which is people booking genre specific these days social media savvy djs who are going to pack out a crowd djs that are just as known to people our age as they are to people in their 20s there's there's that level then there's the level of tear down and i think progressive music in just by its nature has always been quite underground because it's not so obvious is it it's not so hands in the air all the time it's quite in depth there's a massive amount of it in south america but not a lot in this country i don't think it's often characterized quite right on things like beatport when i look at a lot of the tunes that are on there i wouldn't call them progressive i think progressive is an ethos not a style of music in a way it's kind of it is a style don't get me wrong but it's more of a way of putting the music together certainly done by the right people and it's finding the group who maybe like you say have either fallen out of love of clubbing or have just believed that this is something that should be left in the past mm. and actually weeding these people out via modern channels facebook etc or getting on the blower to people you've not seen in a while as you've said you know getting 70 people we got 99 the other night you don't need many people to have a party this is the this is the thing that's totally misunderstood is that we've seen millions of people at big raves we've seen clubs that are packed we talked about gatecrush we talked about cream talked about global phenomenon you think of ibiza you think of these massive festivals you don't need that many people in a room united by the music to have a good time yeah but what you do need to do <laughs> is not get in debt is not like over egg it and is not think that it's just going to be plain sailing because it's very far from that true and and, and the another life thing that i did with dan you know it was a free event and all the local djs that played for us played played the niche right so it cost us what a couple of hundred quid um and that was just about having a good time you know um I think, you know, the secluded stuff, um, Stu's trying to create a brand. He's trying to stand up the scene, as I said. You know, we, we had good numbers for the day scene, and it was a great night, by the way, but we had good numbers. We're really quite, feeling quite buoyant about the next one as well. Um, and it is about, we, we spoke about this, it's about continuing to put the nights on, not disappearing. I think we need repetition. How many, I mean, nobody does weeklies now. Like, you know, the days we were just speaking about, there was weeklies, then there was monthlies. You know, <clears throat> what we see now is large event spaces. And there's a few in Manchester now that are starting to do quite a lot, aren't there? You know, but the, you see large event spaces that are putting their own nights on. Um, not promoters. No. You know, um, so Stu's, he's going old school. He's an old school promoter, you know, it's his night, and he's looking to put on quality music and he's looking to do it, you know, several times a year to try and create that brand. Um, and I think that's how you stand, that's how you stand the scene up. Yeah, it's diff It's a difficult one. I mean, obviously, I come, I come at this scene from many different angles. I think often I ask myself, what exactly am I doing? Why am I doing it? Um, 
you know, I'm not mad for bands. I haven't been into one band and followed them around the world. Got all the t-shirts in my drawer with all the dates on that I've been to them. You know, I abandoned maybe clubbing itself for several reasons uh, in favour of other things. My wife's into very different music, which she's influenced me in a lot of things that I never would have given chance to go and see. And I've seen through being with her, I've opened my mind to different types of music and, in, and enjoy all sorts of music. Yeah. by all sorts of different artists. But I just don't know what it is about this scene that I kind of still hold quite dear to. Um, and when I say I come out from different angles, I think it was inevitable for me to put on events after doing different things. But having always come from a DJing point of view, I, I've always preferred to be the one mixing it than stood watching somebody else mix it. Ultimately, if you see yourself as a DJ, um, I don't define myself as that, but I see myself as a DJ, you ultimately have to do it in front of people at yeah. a night. And um, you do. It, yeah, it, it's it's what it's about. I was, you know, I was doing the online thing. I was doing subcode, which was brilliant. Um, and I'm on, I'm on 4Beat Radio now, uh, which, you know, is great. And, and I like doing the streaming thing, but, but for me... Um, it was about trying to get in front of people 100% and actually do it live. And you're absolutely right. Uh, but from my, you know, from my perspective, you know, um, you know, you, you say bands, I, I do like going to see bands. I don't, there's a big music festival in Sheffield called Tramlights that you might've heard of. And they have, they have like pretty big bands on in, in, in Hillsborough Park and everybody goes. But of course, because there's a lot of people coming to the city, a lot of the club promoters put nights on. Uh, there's little sort of like the call them tram lines fringe parties, and I DJed at one last year. Nice. Um, for years at tram lines, I've been to watch DJs. I've not gone to the main stage and watched and watched the bands because it's me, you know. And like last year, I played them all. But but it, it's more me. It's more me. The the repetitive beats is more me than 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 watching whoever it be, whoever <laughs> the big or whoever. Yeah. It's odd. I mean, you know, more recent years clubbing. Obviously, you and I—that's how—that's how we met. We met at, um, yeah. at gigs. We Sasha. met at, um, Sasha gigs. Um, yeah. Both in Manchester, um, in Leeds. Leeds, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and um, I think there is a difference between. I think there was part of me was still wanting to do it, still wanting to see good DJs. A bit of nostalgia, a couple of my mates that went and then being part of like the Progressive House UK thing that I'd started was kind of like meeting other people that were still in the scene. It all kind of led a bit really after lockdown to just bringing it back to where I live, not not needing to go and travel to another city. The mm. costs of which, of course, you know, you're buying a ticket, you're traveling somewhere else, either petrol, car parking, hotel, all the rest mm. of it, away from your missus away from your mm. family and these gigs are kind of like they're never really what I was going to say something that travels to Newcastle I can't even remember the last time Sasha or people like that played up here certainly the progressive sound 303 in Liverpool was was a hot spot for us to go all the way over there I've got friends that still live in the northwest so I could travel over there we could stay in Preston we could drive over one of us might drive we occasionally got a, and it all just, it's all just quite far away from me. And 
like I said, I'm a desperate to be a clubber on the dance floor. No, but I am keen to hear the music loud as intended. I'd just yeah. rather be doing it myself. So, so Dave, what do you what do you think the the future holds then in terms of your part to play in helping Stu with these nights? Have you got a, an end goal in mind or? Um, not really. I mean, I mean, my end goal. Well, not not for me personally. Um, you know, I just want to enjoy DJing. Um, I want to be involved. I want to be part of creating that scene around that night and around other nights. Playing in front of people is brilliant. You know, I, I, I still like going clubbing, but you're right, playing is brilliant. And if I can continue to, to DJ for a few years, play with the likes of the D, of DJs that I, I'm now playing with, which you know, I probably never thought I would, um, I just want to continue doing that and enjoying it, to tell you the truth, enjoying that. Um, there's some there's some stuff going on this year in Ibiza, which is going to be interesting. So I'm you know, going over there in May to do two or three sets as part of a project. Oh, lovely. I uh, don't know where I'm playing yet. don't know where I'm playing yet, but it's going to be a good experience for me. So, so that is another potentially another strain to my bow. Might not be playing progressive. Might play some some house and some some tech, unsure as to where I'm playing yet, but that should be good. Um, but also, for me, this is something for me to focus on. This is something for me to do. You know, I'm a single guy, live on my own. Um, so it's something to get my teeth into. Um, and, you know, it is it is a hobby, um, but it's a hobby that um, I enjoy and it's a hobby that could take me to various different places. You know, when you put yourself under uh, under a bit of pressure from time to time, it's good. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, we know what it's like. You know, you, you stand in front of a number of people. They expect you to be good. Be good. And, and it's good to put yourself in that situation sometimes. And, and yeah. you know supposed to be good at this prove it yeah it's, um, it, it's yeah. good to hear you talk like that i mean moving out of this online space you it's obviously very social environment and good luck to you going to ibiza um and yeah. good luck to you with everything that's happening in sheffield what i would say is dave come back and let me know we'll do another one of these and talk about how everything's gone again these are really just about conversations i hope the listeners enjoy them i think what you're doing in sheffield's really exciting coming from the history that we've talked about today it's nice to think that you'd be a part of the of the the future and then therefore the history moving forward so please do be a guest again let me know what goes on for everybody that's listening what's the date for the next gig uh, the next gig is saturday the 25th of march at network sheffield lexicon avenue steve parry Higgins, myself and um dave Kenhill. Amazing, I know that's good. And um, and and listen, thank you, thanks for inviting me on. It's been it's been great to talk. Um, really appreciate it, and uh, I'd be more than happy to come back and uh, and give you an update um on on all of it. And here's hoping it goes well. Fantastic, yeah. Well, the best of luck. What we'll do, Dave, send me all the links, send me all the ticket links and stuff. So when we put the show out, we can um make sure that anybody that's uh, fancying a top night like that can get on board. Cool. Thanks again. It's absolutely fantastic to chat to you and uh, to talk to people who've, who share the same passion as us. And uh, hopefully the listeners will feel engaged by what you've said and uh, maybe spark some bits of nostalgia as well. So, uh, yeah, take care, Dave, and we'll, uh, we'll speak soon. Nice one, Danny. Take care.
See you later.